if we do a good job of asking questions and treating our customers in the right way, then they have every reason to expect that the post-sale support will be just like that. So all these touch points that happen with us as the buyer throughout the entire life cycle of the company, that's the product and that's what they're buying. I would also submit to you, if we have emotional alignment, if you believe that I'm a good partner to you, nothing ever goes as smoothly as you hope it will, Never then right. you're willing to give me a second chance. And that's why we sell, leading with those feelings, leading with the beliefs, leading with the emotions, rather than the functional technical details of the product. Hi friends, welcome to the WinRate Podcast. I'm your host, Andy Paul. That was David Primer, and David is one of my guests on this episode of the WinRate Podcast. Many of you know, David Primer is the founder and chief sales scientist at Cerebral Selling. He's also author of the book titled, Sell the Way You Buy. My other guests today for this discussion about sales effectiveness and increasing win rates include Kyle Williams. Kyle is a frequent contributor to this podcast. He's the founder and CEO at Brickstack. And also joining us are Mark Tracy. Mark is the senior sales manager for marketing solutions, strategic accounts at LinkedIn. So if you're ready, let's jump into the discussion. Hi, and welcome to this episode of the WinRate podcast. And as always, we have an all-star cast joining me today. And people just spend a few minutes or a few seconds, so a little introduction about themselves. David, why don't we start with you? Yeah, my name is David Primer. Uh, I say I'm the founder and chief sales scientist of Cerebral Selling. It's good to just make up your own titles for stuff. Ah, ah. And I'm like the classic former research scientist turned accidental seller 20 plus years ago. And uh, I teach the art and science of modern selling. So I didn't know that you had an academic background or a I scientific did. background. What would you, you do? Yeah, I was doing research. I was building, I don't want to get too nerdy. I was building toxic contaminant computer models. I was doing research in chemical. Oh, don't we all? Yes. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. yeah. Met many years ago and I ended up, so this is like in the late nineties and I ended up joining a startup at the turn of the dot-com boom and fell in love with sales after that and ended up joining four startups and three ended up being acquired and one was acquired by Salesforce and I came over with the ship. I was there for five years, but I still, people always ask me, they say like, aren't your parents upset that they spent all this money? I paid for most of my education, but spent all this money and all this time to become a research scientist just to, to end up sales in sales. Yes. yes and I just say, no, I use my research scientist stuff all the time. In fact, I have a post on my blog about Everything I learned about sales from being a research scientist. So there you go. We'll dig into that a little bit later. Yeah. All right, Mark. Yeah, my name is Mark Tracy. I lead the sales team within LinkedIn strategic account segment and run a coaching and consultancy business called Senin Sales Consulting. Okay, you got a little side hustle going. Just a little bit, yeah. Nice. All right, we like that. And Kyle's back for, gosh, I don't know, third time, fourth time already? I, thanks for letting me hang out again. Yeah, yeah. Uh, yeah, I run a company called Brickstack and a couple things in stealth. But at Brickstack, we help companies with hard to identify ICP, which is most companies really believe you can't say the right thing to the wrong account or wrong person. So we help companies navigate that. And I, maybe an inverse of David, I started in sales, but started learning software engineering when I was at Google. And I wasn't doing toxic chemical simulation, but I did break Google Sheets for everyone at Google once for about five hours in the middle of the day. So oh, what you did do? get that done. I was not good enough to directly run a server at that point. So I was using Google Sheets has this thing called Google App Script, which is sort of like VBA, but it all runs in the cloud. And so I was pinging email servers with that to figure out what people are using for email security so I could change my pitch. 
and I had a bug and it <laughs> blocked all ability for Google Sheets to work for everyone. That it's a good claim to fame to have. It's a great claim. Yeah. I, I, I was like, I know exactly enough to be dangerous. <laughs> and you proved it, right? Yeah. <laughs> all right. Well, great. Well, we are going to talk about sales and, you know, David, we'll start with you. Cause you had read one of your recent posts talking about people don't buy products, they buy feelings. So tell us what you meant by that. I mean, this is back to like the, the scientific roots. People buy feelings and we make decisions based on feelings. And I said like 100% of the time. And we know this often I refer back to like James Clear's book, Atomic Habits, right. where he talks about, and he doesn't get into all the science of this, but he says when people have lost the ability to express feelings, they don't know how to make decisions. They can't make any more decisions. And so what I believe he's referring to are individuals who have suffered traumatic brain injuries in accidents and so on. And they lose the part of the brain associated with feelings and they, they don't know what signals to pursue. And so at a very scientific level, we know this, but at the end of the day, I say to salespeople, when we think about value and we're always conditioned as salespeople to sell value, but really as sales leaders, when we tell someone to sell value, what we really mean is sell the return on investment, right? And I always say like the only thing that matters as it relates to a business case or a return on investment, if I'm pitching you something is whether or not you believe that what I say is going to happen is going to happen. Like, oh, deploy the solution and this, you'll get this revenue. If you don't believe what I have to say, then you're not going to buy. And the last time I checked, belief was a subjective feeling and not an objective statistic. And so this idea that it all comes down to belief in terms of the product, the value. We also, as people, if I were to ask you gentlemen, I'd say, tell me something you spend money on that another person would look at and say, that's ridiculous right? Like we all have things mm. like that, right? And so you're not calculating the ROI of everything you buy. And the same thing holds true in the B2B software tech space that I know we probably all kind of work in. We buy feelings 100% of the time. So is belief the same as trustworthiness? Well, it, it is related. So for example, if I'm trying to buy something from you, I'm evaluating not just the product, but your organizational capability. When I always think about this as a startup guy and also like a big tech software guy, this question is like, what is your ability as an organization to deliver on the promise that you've made? And so if I trust you, if I believe in your team and your organizational capability and your experience, then I'm more likely to listen to what you have to say. And the same thing happens in sales leadership as well. I do have a big sales leadership part of my practice. Mm -hmm. If people don't trust us, if we don't have good relationships with people, they are less likely to believe what we have to say. So 100% trust plays into it, these decisions we make as well. Anybody else? Mark? Oh, completely agree. I think there's been uh, a lot of research to support this, and particularly in B2B. The ramifications of a poor decision, a poor B2B buying decision, are much more significant than the ramifications of a poor B2C buying decision. And so I think you have to be cognizant of making sure that you're appealing to that emotive side of the decision. And I think in the environment that we're in at the moment, I think a big thing that we see is that a lot of that comes down to what are you doing to mitigate risk for the person who is making that buying decision? Because ultimately, fear of messing up, as mm. they talk about in Jolt Effect, has become part of paramount importance. Yeah. And so trust obviously comes into it. How you sell is a free sample of how you solve. It's one of one of uh, my favorite quotes about selling. And so you have to be building that trust and showing that you're the type of sales organizations that can solve problems through the sales process for the buyer, because that's an indication of how effectively 
your solution and your company is going to solve problems post-implementation. What if there's a mismatch in that? What if you're actually better at solving the problems during the, the buying process than your, your product isn't delivering a solution? Have a frustrated seller who won't last, who won't want to stick around very <laughs> All long. Right. <laughs> right. Actually, see that happen fairly often. Well, so question I guess I have is, what are buyers actually buying? This is something I sort of think about quite a lot is when they're making that decision, what are they, it, first of all, is it a single decision they're making or is it multiple decisions? And, and what is the decision they're actually making? Because I think this informs how sellers need to sell. And I don't think sellers give this enough thought. Anybody, David, we'll start with you again. Yeah. Well, I think at the end of the day, they are still buying those feelings. Like, and it's not just the feelings that they have about us. I think Mark made a really good point. The experience of buying is the product. What we do in the sales cycle is an audition. And so if we do a good job of asking questions and, and, and kind of treating our customers in the, in the right way, then they have every reason to expect that the post-sale support will be just like that. On the flip side, I think of an example like Apple. If I bought an iPad or a phone and like the product is great, but then I call support and I have this horrible experience, then I'm going to hate Apple. If I go into a great restaurant and the washroom is dirty, right, I'm going to have a bad experience. So the touch points of all these kind of touch points that happen with us as the buyer throughout the entire life cycle with the company, that's the product and that's what they're buying. And it, I would also submit to you that even in an instance where I'm unable to deliver on the value that I said at the beginning, if we have emotional alignment, if you believe that I'm a good partner to you, nothing ever goes as smoothly as you hope it will, Never then right. you're willing to give me a second chance. And that's why when we think about how we sell, leading with those feelings, leading with the beliefs, leading with the emotions, rather than the functional technical details of the product, which are kind of very fleeting in moment in time, is the best way to A, create that experience and B, to create that long-term relationship. So I, it, to sum it up, as you asked the question, we're buying feelings all the time throughout the entire life cycle. But what's that mean in terms of the decision they're making though? In the customer's mind, they're not making a decision to buy feelings. What's the decision they're making? Sorry, sorry. Yeah, I, I think about it in a couple of different ways. I think they're buying the perceived impact that your solution can have on the business they operate in. And that's you know the first thing. And that's why salespeople who are very effective at quantifying business pain and then tying that to metrics and the impact of solving for that pain on specific metrics are very successful. That's one piece. But then the second piece, which is linked to that, is I think they're buying the impact that solving that problem is going to have on their careers potentially. And I think that's where it comes into the, the emotive part, right? There could be a downside impact. Obviously they're hoping there's a significant upside impact mm -hmm. and that will also translate into things in their personal lives as well. I'll share just a quick data point on that. So in my last VP of sales role, um, we had a problem with customer churn in the software company, right? So we had a problem with churn, except there was one rep who had outstanding customer retention. So we wanted to interview him and say, like, what are you doing like to kind of stand out in this respect? And he actually had to think about it because he wasn't conscious of what he was actually doing. Mm -hmm. But one of the things that he said was he said, you know what? I always think about how I'm going to tie the success of my solution to the success of the career of the person who's buying it. And I, if I can find someone who doesn't want to give up on the success of this project, right, who's going to be there in the long run, then that's kind of who I'm betting on. So 
in a way, like, again, we're back to like the feelings. Sure. I want to solve that problem, but I want that person to feel like my solution is a solution to their career problem, career trajectory. And if I can, then I'm going to have that stickiness in the same way. And I say, like, let's say, for example, I'm selling IT security software. If I'm selling to someone who just had a data breach at their company, Mm -hmm. they may not want to tell me that, right? They just had a data breach. But at that point, the question is, what are they buying? They're buying the preservation of their job, right? They're buying their longevity. And so they're probably not likely to go with like the new startup-y solution that just kind of sprung up. They want to go with like the tried and tested. That's why when you hear statements like, no one ever got fired for buying IBM, right? IBM, what does that mean? Does that mean that IBM has the best solution? No, it just means that I care about preserving my job and I know I'm not going to get fired if I buy the tried and tested. Again, feelings. And now a message from Closed. An often overlooked way to improve your win rate is to identify and close win back opportunities. After conducting tens of thousands of buyer interviews, Closed has found that 10% of closed loss deals have the potential to be won back at some point in the future. Now, identifying these win-back opportunities early and knowing when and how to follow up could be worth millions. Closed recently helped one of their customers identify and win a $500,000 win-back opportunity within days of it being marked as closed lost. Closed automatically reached out to perform a win-loss interview when the deal was marked closed loss in the CRM. And the buyer said, well, actually, we're still interested and we're ready to sign the contract. Closed is finding win-back deals on a daily basis for their clients. How about for you? To help you get started receiving the value of consistent, direct, candid feedback from your buyers, Closed is offering all my listeners a free gift. Just go to winlosstoolkit.com and they'll send you a bunch of valuable tools to help you get your win-loss program started. The toolkit includes a comprehensive guide to running a successful win-loss program, an ROI calculator, and they'll even perform your first win-loss interview for free to help you see the value of getting feedback directly from your buyers. So to claim your gift, visit winlosstoolkit.com. That's winlosstoolkit.com. And now a message from Alego. Are you struggling to make your sales team more efficient and improve time to productivity? With Alego's modern revenue enablement platform, marketing sales and enablement teams get on the same page for continuous improvement. So break through all the noise and deliver the buying experiences that your buyers today demand. Enable faster ramp times for your rep and more revenue for your business in less time. See how it all can work for you. Go to alego.com slash demo. That is alego.com slash demo. Kyle, what do you think? Yeah, one maybe lens I would add on that is how it connects to jobs to be done of the I won't explain the whole concept. A lot of people have heard it, but the, the quick version of the McDonald's story with the, the milkshakes and they're trying to figure out how do we make like a better milkshake or love that story, some other thing. And it really turned out it was that people on their commute in the morning, you're bored. So it's kind of nice that this is really thick and it takes a while to, to drink it. And then now that it's mm-hmm. thicker, it's going to last longer into the day. So I'm not starving at 10 a.m. And, and so the jobs to be done were pretty varied. And a lot of times I think that is one framework to think through, like what are the things that are going to be accomplished that aren't as obvious at first blush of, yes, we're going to save you time and make you money, but how is that going to help this person improve their career or be seen as an innovator? That was one of the big pitches we had at Google during the last recession when we were selling Google Docs and Google Apps to 
exchange administrators are used to hugging a box in a data center, and now we're going to put it in Google's, in Google's, was if we had the rational, which is there's a downturn, and it's a third of the cost of Microsoft. So if you talk to us, you'll at least get a discount from Microsoft. So you might as well. The aspirational was you're the CIO, you're seen as a cost center. The future of work is collaboration. 90 plus percent of universities are training everyone how to use Google Docs. They're not going to send versions back and forth. So if you want to be seen as the thought leader, bring collaboration into the organization. And I think having those two lenses of, I think what you talked about, David, is like we justify rationally using the feelings that we had. So I think jobs to be done is a good framework there. Yeah, I look at it from a buyer's perspective. My experience has been, and that's why some research on this, is that really they sort of split their decisions sort of in two parts, if you will, is one is just the first decision is, are we going to make a change or not? Right? It has nothing to do with product, doesn't have to do with, I would say, even with feelings to some degree, though it does. But it's, hey, are we going to make a change? And I think this is where a lot of sellers sort of miss the mark because they're so focused on selling the product and selling, well, selling, let's just leave it with the product at the moment. Is it they miss the mark? The customer is really not at that point yet. Yeah, they're just trying to decide, are we even going to make a change in our business? And... Yeah, is that, I'm sorry, trying to go back to your buying feelings thing, Davis, how that connects to buying feelings. Yeah, well, I'll tell you, so this is a story, and, and I talk about this in my book. I say, and, and don't take this literally, sometimes if you want to sell someone a Band-Aid, you have to cut them first. And I'm not suggesting anyone go out and intentionally harm anyone, but what I'm saying... I may have to put a disclaimer on my podcast. That's right. Uh, we're not advocating for violence. But what's actually happening is that our customers are walking around blissfully unaware oftentimes of the the real challenges they're having. And I think it's actually the job of a good seller. And we talk about the analogy of salespeople being doctors and patients. It, it's true and it's not. It's not true in that just because I ask you a question about your budget and timing and how much this is yeah, costing you, you're not going to tell me. You're not going to tell me these things, right? However, we are doctors in that I see patients like you all the time, Right. So no matter what I'm selling, I'm very in tune with the problems that exist in the market, even if you as the customer in this moment are not aware of what those things are. So what I want to do is when I'm, and I, I literally less than an hour ago, I was having a full, you know, a first call deck revamp of a $70 billion hardware client of mine. We were talking about their first call deck. And I said the same thing. Like you have to be in tune with like, what does your customer care about? What problem are they trying to solve? Even if that problem falls into what I call the unknown unspoken category, which is a problem they don't even know they have. So when you ask them about it, they can't even tell you. And so it's your job as the seller to, in the best possible way, cut them a little bit, which is to basically bring the problems that they might be experiencing and they probably are experiencing, but they don't realize it. And once you do that, then it becomes a problem. I call this sometimes the ninja pitch. It's like once you see this problem lurking in the darkness, you can't ignore it. So back to your point, Andy, about the status quo, I want to be able to knock you off that status quo so that you have to do something about it. Because otherwise, you're just going to be carried along saying, ah, what we're doing now is fine. So you have to bring those problems to people. Yeah, I think that's real. I was written by, writing about that this week on LinkedIn is this idea is that I think one of the most destructive myths that exist in sales is this idea that buyers are 75% of the way through their buying process or decision-making process for the engage with sellers first time, because to your point precisely, David, is they don't know the scope of the challenges they face. And that's, that is our role as sellers. And I think by what the buyers have been telling us and the data shows is that 
buyers think that sellers have largely abdicated that role in favor of just being a commercial for their products. I think I don't want to say like the bad sellers, but like, think about this. If I go into Best Buy to buy a TV and I'm there talking to Andy, I say, Andy, what's the difference between like the Samsung TV and the Sony and the LG TV? And then all Andy does is start reading the little cards that are underneath the TV. Like, oh, this has this many megapixels and this many, like, I'm not an idiot. I can do that. Right. And I'm saying that when, as a buyer, we're doing research, we're often doing some of like the high level research, but we don't understand, like what we don't know is how many of these TVs end up getting returned or the, the panels replaced every year. And that's kind of what I'm looking to Andy, the salesperson, to tell me about the stuff that I can't get online. So that deeper perspective, that's how we substantiate ourselves and our value. As a counterpoint, I worked at Circuit City in high school and <laughs> we would study the different technologies that went into a certain TV and I sold the TVs. But you absolutely would walk up to a TV, read the card quickly, see that it uses plasma, and then you would be able to expound on the benefits of plasma. But I definitely did rely on those cards <laughs> to get the job done. <laughs> so, yeah. so many TVs. Mark? I think what we're talking about here in the language of medic is implicating the pain. And, and I think David has done a really good job of kind of articulating the identification of the pain piece, right? That salesperson's role is to bring their knowledge of the industry and other customers into conversations with customers and highlight converse or highlight problems they might not be aware of yet. The second piece and which is really critical, which is around the, the generating urgency is how do you then implicate and quantify the value or the negative consequences of not solving for that pain? And that's where these, the really elite sales per, uh, people excel. It's the ability to point out the problem, identify it, but then do the discovery two-sided discovery with the customer to help the customer articulate and understand the actual downside or upside in a quantifiable way of actually solving for that pain. And that's where you drive the urgency to move off the status quo because status quo often is the main competitor that we're working against. Well, let's dig into that question about urgency because I, in my career, I don't think I've ever created urgency for a buyer. They had urgency. And this is another myth that sort of drives me crazy and, and not picking on you, Mark. It's just, this is something that exists in general is, and I was selling, I said, seven, eight, nine figure deals. People had a lot of urgency because they were trying to achieve something. Oftentimes my clients were trying to achieve, achieve something strategic, right? Whether it's something, a new position in the marketplace, take advantage of a new business opportunity, certainly growth oriented. Even before that, when I saw things a little less mission critical, it still never felt like, yeah, the urgency came from me. I just curious. And maybe, maybe that's a miscommunication. That, so it's not in my experience, right? I don't think, and what I'm not trying to say is like you create urgency. But some people do. A, that's the point I'm bringing up is there's a lot. You go on LinkedIn and you, sure. especially to, sure. yeah, the last two weeks, of September, we're going to read 80% of the posts are going to be about creating urgency. And it's like, well, come on. That's no, no, no. I think it's, I think it's actually helping the customer articulate the severity of the issue, right? And that creates its own urgency within them versus you pushing on them in any way to try and generate urgency through the buy cycle. But I think there's something, there's another point though, which is triggered by what you just said though, is this idea that you're selling against something instead of for something, right? Is that the thing that's really triggering the buyer to do something is that these pain points. And again, my experience, what I sold, better part of a billion dollars in, in stuff is they were all trying to achieve something. They weren't running away from something. They weren't trying to solve pain points. 
And it's not that there aren't instances where you don't solve pain points. So again, I'm asking collectively in the group, I just think we've got this mindset in sales that's all about, let's find the pain points. And I was like, but no, I want to find the opportunities because the opportunities are way more compelling than the pain points. I think you need both. So if you think about the, like the, I talk a lot about this in my practice, in my book, the concept of loss aversion, that it's like, okay, if I can show you that you're already in pain is a much bigger motivator than gain, but why not use them both? Like if I can talk about the thing that you're doing now that's suboptimal and kind of also take you into the future and, and make that thing even better, then I'm going to be taking you on a much larger emotional journey. But when you talk about sense of urgency, there's actually two concepts there that I think a lot of times people conflate which is importance and priority, which mm. is to Mark's point, importance speaks to the relative magnitude of the problem the customer is looking to solve. So I can quantify and say, this problem is costing you X amount in pain or gain or whatever it is, then that's great. Just like in the same way, if I asked, hey, you know, guys, is your health the most important thing for you? I'd be like, oh my gosh, of course. If I don't have my health, I don't have anything, right? But does that mean that now if I followed you around for a week and wrote down everything you ate and how much you exercised and how much stress you blew off and all that. like, would your behaviors be consistent with this idea that your health is the most important thing? I think we, for most people, I think we know the answer to that question. But if I told you you're going to have a heart attack in the next three months, if you don't do this thing, you don't eat better, you don't actually, you would then prioritize it. So I think salespeople often confuse the fact that, by the way, everyone has a good business case. Every vendor you know, has a good bit, like, but a good business case, it's not enough. It is like, I've seen it time and time again. People shoot. I have clients that do proof of concepts with people. You don't even have to believe me. We're going to put the thing in your environment and we're going to show you the bucket of money that this returns to you. And the customers still don't buy at the end of it. So mm -hmm. it's not a matter necessarily of just importance. It has to be elevated in terms of like the number one, two or three thing that the customer believes is going to be critical to their success. And it doesn't matter how good the ROI is. So remind me to send you an article, because this is one of my trigger points, loss aversion. See, I don't think it's ever been a factor in anything I've ever sold. As I said, I've sold big stuff, seven, eight, nine figure deals, big companies around the world. I've always been a skeptic about it. But I'm going to send you an article because uh, my favorite article send around Scientific American headline is Paraphrasing is the biggest idea in decision-making is a fallacy. And basically it's loss aversion doesn't exist. Latest academic research, scientific, scientific American. I'll send you the article. Yeah. Well, look, I want to re I want to read it. And, but I, I just, from what you said so far, I don't disagree with you. It's not that yeah. loss aversion is not true. I think it's not sufficient. It is not sufficient to motivate someone to take an action now. Hmm. Yeah. So it's been my but throwing back to you, just understand, I'm, still, I'm like a dog with a bone with this sense of urgency thing, right? Okay. When you were selling, how many times, like how many of your deals came from cold outreach emails or cold calls that you made to people who were not aware in any way or had no sense of urgency at all about the solution that you ended up successfully selling? Most of them. Actually, I spent a big chunk of my career selling products that didn't exist. So, so if that's the case, where does your viewpoint on the fact that a salesperson can't through the sales process, make some aware of an issue and create a sense of urgency with them to sell for that issue come from? 
Well, I think there's urgency and then there's urgency, right? And so the way that urgency is dealt with mostly in sales literature and training is, hey, we're approaching the end of a period. How are we creating urgency to act now? Whereas sure. I'm, in my case, I was creating urgency to act within a year or two. Yeah. Right? So okay. yeah, that urgency exists because yeah, you have a compelling reason for somebody to make a change in their business. But I was referring more to this urgency that's most often spoke about is, yeah, we can create urgency. Yeah, here's a discount. Act yeah, today or it goes away. We yeah. actually agree then. Because I'm in the same boat as you. I don't think there's very rarely compelling events that you can manufacture that will get somebody to make a decision more quickly. Well, that you can, yeah, there's really an organic event. You can manufacture all sorts of events. Mm-hmm. I was on the, I think Kyle, you and I were talking about this yesterday in one conversation. It's just like, yeah, we've all been in situations where we were compelled to do things that we didn't feel comfortable doing in order to close an order within a certain time frame, where we manufactured urgency. It was our urgency. It wasn't the customer's urgency. <laughs> we were manufacturing our urgency, but that customers see right through that. And they're happy to take advantage of the discounts we give them if that's what we're prepared to do. I always preferred to say, if it doesn't matter to you, then here's my personal motivation and you moving faster. And then if yeah. you built enough of the relationship, most people are, they're humans and it's like, all right, if, it's the difference between having this meeting next week for this week versus next week to get this done. And we like you, we'll get it done. And outside of that, it just feels icky. Yeah. And if you challenge sales leaders, as I as have done, I did this one event where I was going table to table with these various sales managers. And they were talking about, this case, I was talking about spiffs in particular. So yeah, we were giving, using spiffs, giving people big spiffs to bring a deal in this quarter and this month and so on. I said, so let me ask, anybody ever run a, ROI or payback calculation on those spiffs. It's like dead silence. Nope. (laughs) So let's just give away margin (laughs) to get deals we're going to get anyway. Just we got them Friday rather than Monday. So it fell into July versus August, right? It's like craziness. Absolute craziness. But I think that's the next level thought that you have that a lot of organizations don't connect the dots to. It's like just sell the thing at any cost. And unfortunately, like we train our customers to do that. We train our customers at the end of the month, end of the quarter. Now's the time. It's funny at Salesforce, we used to talk about January, which was our end of year, like January magic, which was two things. Number one, people working at an unsustainable level of effort, right? So it's just like, kiss your family goodbye. We'll see you on January 31st. And then number two is all the renewals for all the contracts where we were hustling last year and the year before and the year before come up for renewal now. And so it creates this kind of crucible where all this kind of stuff happens. But I'll tell you, like one of the most impactful exercises I went through, this is years ago when I was working at this big enterprise software company. They said, okay, I want you to write down, like, let's say it's the end of the month, end of the quarter. I want you to write down all the reasons why a customer would want to move forward in terms of why it's good for them. Mm-hmm. So they, like regulatory compliance, sunsetting, exi- like whatever, all these, like, just make that list. And then I want you to make the list of like, why would it be good for you for the customer to like close that quarter, right? And their list is way longer and a lot more compelling, right? Right. <laughs> than our list. So I, I agree with you. Like this whole idea of commanding a deal to close when we decide it's ready to close is a bit of a fallacy for sure. And now a word from Cognizant. Picture this, your revenue team armed with accurate B2B contact data that leaves missed opportunities and unreachable prospects in the past. Look no further than Cognizm, the B2B contact data provider that stands out with unwavering focus on data quality and coverage. Cognizm's US data set alone offers two times more cell phone numbers 
than any other provider on the market. And it gets even better. 7 million human-verified cell phone numbers backed by a 98% accuracy rate deliver precision like you've never seen before. And if international business growth is on the horizon, Cognizant offers the most complete GDPR-compliant data in Europe, making your expansion dreams more attainable than ever. Customers like Drift have already experienced the power of Cognizant. In just 30 days, they proved ROI and now book 70% of their outbound meetings using Cognizant's cell phone data. But don't take our word for it. Get a free data sample and test the quality for yourself. Head over to Cognizant.com slash data sample to get your free data sample today. That's Cognizant.com slash data sample. Yeah, you still still want to hit your numbers. You still, yeah. especially your public company, you still have a forecast you're trying to hit and so on. But the ways to plan your business and your business as a seller, right? To ensure that you have opportunities that will close in the time frame that you need. Sometimes they don't. Hey, life happens. Kyle, look like you're about ready to say something. Oh, I'm more spinning on this. Andy, I somehow managed to weave this into every conversation, but the relevance, resonance, and reach, which I think really applies to a lot of the topics we're talking about of sort of like, where are we with the buyer and what are we trying to accomplish? And it really just, I have this belief that good go-to-market is a function of relevance, which is the state of the customer. Are they the type of customer who can mm -hmm. benefit from what you have to offer? Resonance, which is your ability to resonate with the fact that the, they are relevant. And then reach, can you do it in the right scale that allows you to hit whatever cost of acquisition, et cetera. And sometimes the big problem that we have is we put reach first. And whatever you put first compromises what comes next. And so when you put reach first, we're like pumping out tons of just spam emails. And then now we have low quality deals coming through and we don't have the really the ability to resonate. And then our win rates are abysmal, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And really a lot of these are a, an indictment of like, did, were we actually talking to someone who's relevant, whether they had, I think what you sort of described, David, is that latent pain, right? Like you, I'm at the doctor. And I'm not raising my right arm, but I'm used to not raising my right arm. And so I need to poke that a little bit to say, you could lift this faster <laughs> if we fix that arm. And so are they in that relevant state? And then what's my ability to resonate? And sometimes I think we forget that is contextual, right? If somebody's dying of thirst in the desert and I'm the only person with a jug of lemonade, like I don't have to do much to be relevant. <laughs> but if we're like in a med spa with where they got IVs, like they're probably going to ask, are the lemons organic or something like that? Like I need to beef up what I'm speaking to. So. Just connecting that dot to what we're talking about is like, is this an indictment of were we just not in a relevant situation to begin with, or do we not properly resonate? And in that world, it's a little bit easy, easier to have the conversation that says, hey, David, I know we're close. I know you've functionally made the decision. It's end of quarter. If it doesn't make any difference to you, it helps me if we could get it done this week. But no change either way. Like, well, we're going to get this done and do it right for you. If you've hit the relevance and resonance, majority of the time that customer will at least try to make it happen for you versus we're going to strong arm you and make you feel guilty or bad that you're going to miss out on something if you don't get it done in three days instead of six. Yeah, I mean, what you're talking about, and this, I think, goes to what David talk, talked about earlier in terms of feelings, is you're being very transparent about your motives, right? Mm -hmm. My motives are, yeah, I'm only going to succeed if you succeed. I'm here to help. Yeah, I'm not going to force this down your throat the last week of the month with, and that's the thing you see happen all the time, right? Seller shows up, quote unquote, I'm here to help until we get to the last week of the month, then I'm here to have you give me an order. Sorry, Mark, were you going to add something there? No, no, uh, there's like a bit of a, a, a kind of a time dependency, a temporal dependency on what we're all talking about here, both in terms of 
where the customer is in their buying process, but also where we are just in terms of life. So when I think about like where the customer is in the buying process, I can speak to a client and I can kind of figure out, do they need to do something quicker? Or is this like a nice to have over the next year? We should probably do something. So I'm not going to push people to do something. I, mean, I never really push people to do anything anyways, but I'm not going to push someone to do something. If I sense on a, let's say an excitement scale of zero to 10, they're kind of like a three. Like it doesn't mean that eventually they won't do something, but sure. it's different than if they're like an eight. And I feel like maybe I can do a little bit of stuff. But also we're living in a really unique time now where we're kind of in this post-pandemic world. What's really interesting is that after the first little blip of the pandemic where everyone was like, oh my gosh, what's going to happen? Especially in the technology space, customers, companies started to buy all this technology because they're like, oh, we're forcing people to now go to the cloud. Everyone's working remotely. So imagine if you were like a Zoom AE, you're selling Zoom at the beginning of the pandemic. You're like, look how great I am. I'm selling Zoom and I'm so good. And so what happens is you end up building these like bad behaviors or bad lessons because you're being successful, despite the fact that you're probably not doing anything that's exceptional. And then you kind of move through the time where now we have these kind of learned bad behavior. And I see this all the time with my clients now, which is now we, it's hard to sell stuff because now selling became really hard. Budgets dried up. People are putting recession plans in place. Salespeople are getting objections that they've never heard before, unless you were selling in 2008, which most people were not, right? And so now they don't know what to do. It's just as old guys, but yeah, go ahead. <laughs> Even in so far as like, I hear this all the time now too, when we went into a virtual world and we were selling remotely, we couldn't go on site with customers. They weren't even in their offices. So we were all kind of selling remote now. And a lot of people got into the sales game then. And I hear this sales leaders lament now. They're like, my team doesn't even know to, how to have on-site meetings with people. Like they don't know how to meet people in person and do stuff. Like they just never had to have that muscle and we never taught them. And now they're paying the price when like you can actually do that now, but you don't know how to do it. So well, there's let, a lot. Let's pursue that point though. is because this has been a big button, hot button for me, which is, hey, I'd sort of divide a person in half. I'd say there's the half that's what you know, and there's half that who you are. And we focus all of our training and development on the what you know side and nothing on the who you are side. To your point precisely is we presume people coming into the workforce know how to have these conversations. And that's crazy. Why would we presume that they should know how to do this? It had, I mean, first of all, we have this generational shift in terms of how people communicate anyway. So now we're saying take a whole group of a cohort of people that have grown up through asynchronous messaging and say, go have a conversation with somebody in person and, and expect them to expect them to pull it off. And it's like, and then you see all this stuff on LinkedIn that it makes it sound like these are bad people. They don't know how to do it. It's like that we just haven't taught them and shown them how to do this. It's not just having shown them. It's one thing to talk to a peer and lack some of that social skill. But right. if I can phrase this kind of euphemistic, I wrote this article in Harvard Business a few years back. It was called How Younger Salespeople Can Sell to Older Buyers. And this is a problem I saw at Salesforce mm -hmm. where you have, if I can just say euphemistically, kids that we arm with sales decks and products and say, go sell to grownups whose job you've never done, right? Mm -hmm. And when I listen to some of these phone calls from these reps, and I'm just, I don't even care what the words are. I'm just like listening to how this interchange is going. I'm like, you know what you sound like? You sound like one of my kids when they're about to hit me up for something that they think I'm going to say no to already. Like, mm -hmm. I can tell that you're afraid. 
And why wouldn't you be afraid? I'm asking you to call a grown-up. I'm telling you to call high. You've never done their job. You don't know what they do every day. Don't know what they do, right? Don't know what they do. And you've never lived that life. So how do I expect you to manifest that now we're selling with emotion, right? Like that intoxicating conviction that they need, the customer needs to buy into you when you sound like you're afraid. So that's the other problem. It's not just like two peers talking together. It's most of sales is a young person selling to a more experienced buyer whose job they've never done. Status mismatch. So I I think this is an enablement problem generally regardless of age, right? Where I think people coming into a new sales role get enabled in, in two ways. One is like right up front, they get a bunch of product and solution training. And then when they actually get into the meat of the role where they see their leader show up the most is at the latter stages of the deal, right? When we're trying to get it over the line and where you actually need to be as a sales leader, in my opinion, really focused on helping and enabling and coaching people, regardless of level of experience is the early stages of the sales cycle. Mm-hmm. So to your point, Andy, it's like, how are you going in and having a discovery conversation and bringing a point of view that resonates with that buyer? And that's harder to teach than product or the piece we just talked about uh, around how you get a deal done at the very end of a quarter, but it's it's where we don't focus on enough, unfortunately. Yeah. And I was interviewed on a podcast just earlier today about this sort of, because it was about being an introvert in sales and classic introvert coming into the sales role. And what I found though, is for me in these situations where there was this status mismatch. And I was selling into the construction industry and I was calling on CEOs, oftentimes founders of these sometimes fairly large construction companies is that if I showed up and was sincerely interested in them and just started asking questions and wanted to learn about things that were important to them and their lives and their business lives, that they gave me all the time in the world. And what that gave me was the confidence that, huh, I can show up in these situations and if I'm polite and respectful and friendly and warm and interested and curious about them and learning about them, that they would give me their time. And it's, you know, this is actually, I think a skill, quote unquote skill, I guess, if you will, but is some, some people ask me is, you know, what I think is the cause of people not being able to do this. And I say bad parenting because yeah, my parents, you know, used to dress us up and trot us out in front of grownups and we would have conversations with grownups. That was the expectation that not that we were there for a show, but they would shake people's hands, look them in the eye and ask a question about themselves, about them. And I think it's something that's overlooked all the time with kids these days is you do your kids a favor if you put them in those environments and they learn how to have conversations with adults. I think some too, these often the teams that I work with don't have a good mental image of what their buyer looks like outside of a sales cycle and what their world actually looks like. It's the Mm -hmm. the slide deck and maybe they came up as an SDR. And so they, as far as I'm concerned, it's these nameless, faceless people that mostly tell me no. And every once in a while they tell me yes. And as soon as they do, I don't talk to them anymore. right? Right. And some of the best exercise you can do is a day in the life where you just bring in someone who has the role you have and they can talk through the nuance of like, all right, you thought you sold to product managers and they look like this, but it turns out there's really two main flavors of product managers. Some of them come up more technical, some more from the business side. They think completely differently and I'm a real person and here's how I operate. And you'll, you can see that completely change how teams go to market and you can, 
by the way, do that without having your enablement team bring someone in by doing exactly what you said, Andy, which is every time you get a product marketer on the phone, be curious and ask them and they'll tell you and you get the same, you get the same effect, but that's often, and I wonder if some of the cause is we had this, we're going to turn sales into a conveyor belt production line specialization. And so from a salesperson's perspective, I don't talk to my buyer until someone who's not me has deemed that this company and this person is probably qualified. And then I get to go thumbs up or thumb down. And I'm mostly in a DQ mindset before we even talked to somebody or had any of that curiosity with them. I ran a little exercise. This is, this is going to sound worse than it does. At one of the sales kickoffs I did at Salesforce, I had a client who had a business in a, like a ski resort town. So I flew my team in and we had our sales kickoff at this like ski resort or this, not the ski resort at this customer's office in this little town. It was like a nice kind of offsite. And I said, can you do me a favor? I want to run. I called this, it's going to sound horrible. The CEO petting zoo, where I said like, I want you to kind of be like my little CEO and I'm going to put you in a pen and I'm going to let all my reps come up to you and start like asking you questions and feeding you things. And like when we see CEOs in the wild, because we're told to call high, get to the CEO, like they'll bite your hand off. But here they'll docile and they'll answer your question. So we, we kind of put him on the seat and we said, okay, reps, like ask him whatever you want. And they would say like, hey, we're always told to call high in an organization and like, get to you. Should we do that? Like if I got to you, would that like, would that be good? And it was actually a big learning experience because he's like, you know what? It depends on the organization. But like, if you said, Hey, look, I want to sell you some stuff, get to like, get to the CEO. I would say, you see Robin over there, like Robin does everything as it relates to technology. So I would just direct you to Robin. And if Robin comes to me and says, we need this thing, then we're going to buy it. And the, and the reps are all writing this like, Oh, this is really good. <laughs> so sometimes I like this idea as Kyle saying, like the petting zoo, as it were, like getting to like what actually happens in companies right. so you can sell to them in a much more human way. Yeah. And then you have this, I think, a danger of, I call it overselling, right? Where not every product requires a CEO to sign off on it. And we really do sellers disservice by saying default, call as high as you can, call the C-suite. And it's like, mm, no, actually in my first book, I had a little graph that you graph where your product fits on sort of the strategic scale that determines how high you should be calling. I had a story with a, when I was managing this product team at a startup and I see a division of the company and we're designing a new product. And this one vendor wanted to make sure their chip got designed into the product. And they kept, we had said, or I told them, yeah, you're in, right? And the manufacturing engineers expect it, the engineer, design engineers expect it, but he wasn't going to rest until he could talk to our CEO. The CEO is this brilliant double E himself. And the vendor said, okay, you talked to him, come on in. Got a meeting with CEO, listened to him and said, I didn't really need to be in this meeting, but since you asked me, I've got an opinion <laughs> and they were out. So be careful what you wish for. All right, guys, unfortunately we're out of time. This has been fantastic. Thank you so much for joining me. Everybody just spend a couple seconds to tell us how to reach you. Mark, how can people best reach you? LinkedIn, obviously. Obviously LinkedIn. Yeah, LinkedIn is the way to go. And David. Yeah, you I mean LinkedIn is great. Cerebralselling.com is my site and YouTube channel and everything. So you can find me there. And my book is called Sell the Way You Buy. You can get that wherever you buy books. Excellent. And Kyle. You'll never guess. Hit me up on LinkedIn, Kyle Williams, add the brick stack if you want to find me for sure. And then feel free to DM me if you have questions. I'm open. When I first started podcasting, which is eight plus years ago at this point and 1200 plus episodes ago, when I asked that question, most people didn't say LinkedIn. 
It was almost always default was email or come to my website. So, Mark, you guys have done a great job. Great platform. platform. Love it. All right, guys, thank you very much and look forward to having you all back again. Okay, friends, that's it for this episode of the WinRate Podcast. First of all, thank you for taking the time to listen. I'm so grateful, as always, for your support of the show. If you're enjoying this podcast, really appreciate it if you could leave a quick rating or review for us on Apple Podcasts or Spotify, wherever you listen, because receiving this feedback is really important. It helps us reach a much broader audience of sales professionals. So thank you for that. I also want to thank my guests, Mark Tracy, Kyle Williams, and David Primer for sharing their insights with us today. And again, if you enjoyed this podcast, please subscribe to the WinRate Podcast with Andy Paul on iTunes, Spotify, or wherever you listen to podcasts. Thank you so much for investing your time with me today. Until next time, I'm your host, Andy Paul. Good selling, everyone.